You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to our new podcast series, Gaia Says No, in which we will explore the nature and impact of human activities on the planet. Join Future Net Zero founder Summit Bowes, along with environmental campaigner Angus Forbes and analyst Alex Millward. There will be some strong language. Welcome back to Gaia Says No. I'm Summit Bowes, the founder of futurenetzero.com, where we're trying to make better business lead to a better planet. Do we have a good hope in that? Well, let's hope so. Um, the traction on this uh, podcast has been fantastic. So thank you for everyone who's been listening. Please spread the word. Uh, we had uh, the recent episode with Jonathan Porritt went down a storm, caused a lot of grief, but we like that. We like a, a bit of controversy and we'll have a little bit of that in today's show. As ever, I've got my two... I've got to think of another sort of metaphor for you. I had batteries last week for you too. Uh, I've got my two Ps in an eco pod. How's that? Angus and Alex. Uh, Angus, how are you? Yeah, very well, Simon. Great to be here today. Looking forward to this topic. You are indeed. Are you, are you one of those going to face months in isolation as you come back from Spain then, mate? Well, I escaped Spain. Thank you, ah. Simon. Escaped Spain. We never know Maybe where you France. are. Made it to France. I'm sure that the British government will catch up with me at some point. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> when they introduce the points-based system, mate, you won't be coming in. So that's, that's where it'll go. <laughs> and Alex. Great to see you, everyone. Word. And very much looking forward to this topic. I was, I was going to give you my word for the day. Which yes. Is, uh, on this topic, analytic. Oh, analytic. And I'm delighted to say you don't have to listen to us, Crohn's. We've got someone who's fantastically brilliant and a real knowledge factory when it comes to the world of finance. Claire joins us. Hello, Claire. How are you? Hi, Summit. Thanks for having me. Oh, we are delighted to have you on. And, you know, the main thing is we're here to talk about finance. And I think it's one of those issues that brings people together and separates them when it comes to this thing. But uh, if you would briefly tell people just before we, we, we start about your, your, your finance experience, just so they get an idea of where you're coming from, Claire. Well, I worked um, in sustainable investment for 24 years. So I started at Jupiter in 1990 when we were uh, working on what was then the UK's first green investment fund. In those days, it was very new. We were regarded as complete weirdos. We then went on to set up the global care range of funds at NPI, then worked briefly at Henderson, then I set up the Sustainable Future range of funds at Aviva. And I think what one of the things that I was reflecting on was that in the early days, I, I worked with Tessa Tennant and Mark Campanali. We used to get given an, a huge amount of grief. We were regarded as utter weirdos in the yeah. context of the city. And yeah. Mark actually got himself thrown out of a meeting for asking kind of difficult questions of a waste management company. And when we asked our questions, asking companies about their carbon footprint and so on, the companies themselves tended to respond really well, but our colleagues in the city thought we were very strange and called us tree huggers. So it was really interesting. Recently, I went back into UBS. I was invited to go and talk at a, a, a kind of seminar they were doing. And just the change in 
kind of attitudes from an organization like UBS. You know, everyone is now embracing this. Uh, yeah. Impact investing is kind of, you know, totally the watchword. All these banks embracing the carbon neutral agendas. It, it's very encouraging, really. It's taken a while, but, you know, it's moving in the right direction. Yeah. I, I, I'm so sorry. I know you so well, Claire. I've just used your first name for the audience. This is Claire Brooke. I should have said that officially. Who's now the CEO of, of, of Blue? Is it Blue Marine? Yeah, Blue Marine Foundation. Yes, yeah, so and we'll talk a little bit about that. So we're going to talk about, as you've probably guessed, uh, ladies and gents, money, finance, and its role in everything we do, and whether it's the role for good or the role for bad in the world of getting to net zero. So I have to start, before we have our conversation with uh, Claire, we go through all the stuff of your knowledge, let's, let's start with the, the, the man who's reformed, the, 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 the evil emperor, the Darth Vader of money, uh, Mr. Forbes. In the earlier essence, we know your background, you're a banker. So let's ask the question, is money good or evil in this world? Uh, well, the, the base unit of money as a unit of transaction is, I think, good. It speeds up transactions of goods and services between humans who do not know each other. Uh, so money has been incredibly effective in, in, in growing living standards. Um, the allocation of capital Mm. Um, has been of its time in the last 200 years. Um, you know, I, I read a book once on the top 500 companies of, that have ever been um, created. Right. And in them, nearly everyone was created for a, a good social, what was deemed to be a good social need. Mm. Uh, you know, there were travel companies created for... Uh, getting uh, poor Victorian workers out of the slums of the of the factory uh, yeah. to get them to the coast. You know, when you when you look at capitalism of its time, it is normally trying to do the right thing. What's exciting is after a you know a sort of a bit of a car crash with regard to the biosphere of the last fifty years is that as Claire says, capital allocators are are keen to restore and realize the responsibility that's befalling on their shoulders now. You know, I mean, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, we covered in our first episode, you know, we're, we're all bastards, but, you know, we explored your background, our background. We, who, who can say who we are? Are we better or worse than each other? But I suppose the thing about money is it, 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 it is, as you say, a tool to change things and drive change, but it's also often associated with greed, often mm. associated with, uh, avarice, the, hu the worst parts of human condition. In all those years of banking, and you said in your first episode, you said that, you know, I was like a kid in the sweet shop, I'd come in and I saw things in a different way. Are you a different person in the way you look at money now? And is that, if you don't mind me saying, because you've achieved some wealth or is it because you, you think you've just changed your attitude to money? I think I've grown up, mm. probably. You know, you, you start off in your 20s, someone gives you a job. I mean, you know, you fall to, fall to your knees in gratitude, whatever yeah. that job is. Mine just happened to be in the city. Yeah. And so, and then you as, you, as you get a bit older, you realize what's going on and, and the role of capital. And we've chosen at this point in human history to live with global capitalism, right? And there are elements that are out of control. I mean, some of the greed, it really sickens me you know, um, the, the ratio of 
um, CEO earnings to the employee. Yeah. We know yeah. all time high. Yeah. The skullduggery of some people in the city. You know, yeah. we, we know that there's six hundred and fifty trillion dollars worth of of derivatives. You know, and and hardly very few of those are necessary. But people are on the take. So mm. I really get it that people who may be listening to this podcast go that you know these are greedy. Yeah. You know nasty people and they and and many of them there are a lot of them at the at the fringe who mm. who you know, basically take the piss yeah. and, I, and i really hate that but yeah. we have to recognize the conditions of our time and that is at the moment it is global capitalism and we can turn that tool for good and a lot of of the leaders are starting to do so yeah uh, alex your, your take on money yeah, I've, I've got a slightly different perspective. For sure, like in any end walk of life, there's people who do take advantage. But actually, I'm a believer in the majority of people are actually fairly good, decent citizens. Uh, you know, on, on the upper end of earnings, I, I tend to think you know, some of these jobs are really, really hard and take a lot of emotional um, commitment and personal sacrifice away from family and that yeah. ubiquitous work-life balance that people talk about. And, you know, they've been fortunate enough to earn uh, enough money such that continuing to make those sacrifices you know, requires a, you know, a strong incentive. And shareholders who elect these chief executives just zoning in on that one you know, have a trade-off and a choice between, you know, who is going to advance the overall stakeholder yeah. cause. Um, so actually, I, I don't have a problem with earning, people earning a significant amount of money as long as, you know, they're, they're making that societal contribution. And that's for society to put, the checks and balances in some people like the Warren Buffett, you know, is encouraging those who have made absolutely billions, you know, give away the vast majority of their fortune and probably yeah. will stand a better chance of affecting progressive outcomes uh, than some governments, you know, Bill Gates and his, his, his pursuit of eliminating malaria, for example, which kills, kills a lot of people have more success than some individual governments, I'm sure. Yeah. So and I don't I, have a problem with that. I just think it's the social checks and balances and we'll come on to it with Claire, yeah, the yeah, we ESG were, to, to balance it through. Yeah, and I suppose the thing I, I suppose is, you know, for me, um, obviously, if I wanted money, <laughs> never become a journalist, never been a big driver. But, you know, and, and I look at we look at what's happened with COVID and you see, you know, people clapping for the NHS. And I've got a friend who works in the lab, uh, you know, did the same degree as me, microbiology, and he's still earning 23 grand. Well, he doesn't want to clap. He wants a pay rise. So it's almost as if not it's not sort of money, but it's it's equity it's fairness i think that drives people's resentment of people with money do you think that's a fair fair view there's definitely quite a lot of research about the the, the disparity and the, the countries even if the, even if the lowest poorest people in that country have a global relatively high quality of living yes. if the richest in that country if there's such a big disparity then that that can cause disharmony because people look from within their locality rather than globally yeah. And you know, even the poorest in that society could be much better off with much higher living standards than others around the world. So yeah. it, it depends on where people are looking and what comparisons they use, I find. Angus, you were going to say something briefly then. What was that? No, I was just making sure that Alex answered it better than me. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Count I think, I think is 20 pound notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but it's a point, isn't it, that I think what we've seen is as you say, over the decades, you know, go back 40, 50 years, there were always rich people and there were always people who were less well off. 
but the dis disparity between what that gives you in life, not just here, but globally, the picture, the difference between rich and poor countries is now staggering. And that's mm. affecting attitudes towards mm. the biosphere as well. Because mm. you can, it's a license to pollute, they say. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll pollute, but I'll plant a few trees or give some poor countries some money. So do you think that that is the thing, the disparity has grown so big over the last 50 years, as you call it in your book, The Great Acceleration? Yeah, absolutely. If you have net assets of $1 million, yeah. net assets, that's your house, some savings, $1 million US dollars, you're in the top 70 basis points of the world. So if you're in the 99.3% in the of humanity that does not have that, you're looking up at this very small group and saying, you're different to us. You know, you're, you're taking the mick. You're not being, you know, you're not taking enough care of the biosphere. Um, and so you can understand, as you said, it's a divisive issue. So we're going to, you know, we're going to have to tread carefully for the next 40 yeah. minutes. <laughs> no, no, and, and it's a fair point. This is where we should bring Claire in. So Claire, we, we, we got briefly about your uh, original sort of entrance into the city. Let me just ask you that question. Did you go into the city because, let's be honest, it was about money? Or did you go into it because it was something kind of, appealing what, what what drove you into the city in the first place well yeah i've somehow managed to um avoid becoming very rich from all my time in the city <laughs> through um you know a, a series of kind of errors of judgment probably but <laughs> but i think but you know, go back to the 21 year old claire that what, what what was it that said i'm gonna go and get work in the city Oh, well, I didn't want to work in the city. I wanted to work in environmental investment. I wanted to work in this, you know, pioneering field, which I thought was a new and interesting way of addressing a problem, which until then had only been addressed through philanthropy and activism. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, working to try and get positive investment to encourage um, what we termed industries of the future, industries that were going to bring about solutions to all the problems, you know, be it in healthcare or water shortages or energy, rather than fueling the, you know, old polluting industries or problematic industries. So, you know, and I still maintain that's a very important part of the solution. You asked about, you know, how our personal philosophies have changed. And I think um, personally, I've probably moved possibly along with a lot of people recently driven by the pan pandemic from, I guess, more of a sort of Hayek, um, you know, free market, uh, private investment is everything to a sort of Keynesian, we have to manipulate the economy to either iron out inequalities or, you know, specifically deal with a, a, a global crisis. Yeah. And I think, interestingly, the pandemic may have been, may prove to be a sort of test case for how governments can respond to what's going to be the even bigger challenge, dare I say it, of um, climate change. So just to clarify, did you, were you an environmentalist who landed in the world of finance? Is that how you sort of got into it in the first place? I was a, an idealist, I think, more broadly. I think, uh, you know, in, back in 1990, environmentalism was, was fairly nascent. So when I was at Oxford in the 80s, the, the big thing that I was involved with personally was anti-apartheid. Right. And, you know, so I think I, I was more of a social campaigner at heart, but then, you know, rapidly 
grew to be very influenced by Tessa Tennant, who I was working with, and um, Jonathan Porritt, and others, you know, to, to realizing that the environmental crisis is not only the most serious that we face as a human race, but also is responsible for a lot of the inequalities yeah. we face. And, yeah. and actually, if I can, you know, just bring in my current work in Blue Marine Foundation, yeah. the, the crisis of overfishing, of sort of plundering the oceans at yeah. a, you know, vast environmental scale impacts adversely on poorer nations and sort of, you know, poorer coastal regions in Africa, for example, and around the Indian Ocean far more than on rich nations because you're basically displacing people who yeah. had a perfectly good livelihood until their waters were emptied. Yeah, the Somali pirates being the... the, the exactly. Country. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's skip back a bit. Let's go to your uh, early career and this idea of money coming in to try and do some good in the environmental... You said right at the beginning, people just used to take the piss and thought you were all tree mm -hmm. huggers. Mm -hmm. very hard. I love hugging trees, anyway, <laughs> so that was fine. <laughs> was it really hard to, 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 to... What was the attitude? Was it like, oh, well, this is a bit of... We ought to do this to make the, 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 the critics go away and it's all good and blah, blah, let's give this woman a bit of money and that'll do. What, what was the attitude in those early days? Well, you know, it's part of a team always. And so, no, we felt, you know, like the wonderful sort of rebels within a, a, a fairly sort of straight environment. Um, I think one of the things that helped a lot was that when we went to NPI, we launched this global care range of funds and our funds had a, an amazing patch of kind of great performance. So at one point, uh, the uh, managed pension fund we were running was the top performing managed pension fund in in the uk so that was a brilliant way of sticking it to them you know rather than sort of moaning and going oh don't be nasty to us we just performed better than them and brought in more money so but that because and this is the crux of it you could see that investing in environmental projects or sustainable tech as, as is now a big sector but you know in those days could you see that there were returns there I, and this is where we want to be very unapologetic. This, web, this website, this platform we have is about business and we don't have a problem with people earning money. You know, we just have a problem with, you know, are you earning money at the cost of the planet? And that's what we, we want to try and address. So was it really that money talked in the end because you saw the opportunity in these new technologies and these new fields that others didn't and they did return? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, these these industries were taking market share, they were growing versus the, you know, latent old school industries, which were in decline. Obviously, there were, you know, cycles and there were good times and bad for these emerging sectors. But, you know, broadly speaking, it's been borne out that those those sectors are going to grow much, much faster. And, you know, I think it's only the beginning, by the way, you know, I'd still put my <laughs> rather derisory savings into those funds run by friends of mine, you know, <laughs> who I sort of left behind because um, they're still doing brilliantly. And the, I mean, would you want to invest in oil companies now or airlines? But if I had a massive portfolio and I was thinking about the return in the short term, or so, people still do, don't they? I mean, this is, this is only a culture we've seen in the last five, four or five years, this divestment stuff. Before that, it was, you know, secure, go into the big things, oil, gas, big infrastructure, 
because they give you the returns and they give the returns for lots of people. Whereas the, the stuff that you, you've been you know, advocating, a lot of people say, well, that's been very risky and, and they have failed. A lot of companies have failed as well, haven't they? Yeah, but you know, the invest, people investing wouldn't necessarily invest in those early stage companies. I think, by the way, arguing about whether or not sustainable investment performs better than unsustainable mm. was one of the things that eventually drove me to leave because I got so <laughs> bored of yeah. that same argument. <laughs> Sorry, Summer, not to be no, rude, no, but you know, they what? perform, you know, at least as well, if not better. Go and look at, you know, the web funds or um, the funds run now by uh, Lion Trust, you know, and look at their long-term track record. These funds do brilliantly, but, um, you know, as far as I, could, I was concerned, I'd sort of had that argument over 24 years and I was bored of it. So, no, no, you know. That's interesting. That, so, you, you, even with this massive progress that we've seen, you know, I, I tried to open a, a little savings for my toddler and it said, you can own a baby ISA, a junior ISA, and it said traditional funds or eco funds or whatever they're called, something green. And I, I went green. But I would never have got that choice even a year ago or two, two years ago. So we can see it in how things are being you know, run. We're every day on Future Net Zero, we run stories about companies saying we're not going to go to oil and gas investment. We're moving our pension funds away. But mm. you seem to suggest you were still frustrated coming against this wall of saying, well, that's safe and that's where I'm going to put my money, Claire. Yeah, um, I, I just, uh, you know, got slightly bored personally of answering that question. But, you know, other people can do it far more lucidly than me and carry on doing it. I think what's changed, by the way, is, you know, these, these funds are run by human beings and the advisors are human beings. And everyone um including financial advisors has woken up over the last few years to the fact that climate change isn't just a sort of distant worrying prospect talked by talked mm. about by you know hand-wringing tree huggers like me yeah. it's happening right now it's having real incredible incredibly serious impacts it could actually be far worse than we're all you know even the most gloomy of us are thinking and therefore that's going to affect every aspect of our lives including the way we travel and the way we invest our, our savings so you know either get with the program or look like a bit of a dinosaur yeah what's your take on money being used to to work for for in brackets good okay let's let's just use that term because let let's say in all the years that you you were working in the city and working these farms and do you feel that there was a positive change? Did, did that money do any good, Claire? That's what I'm asking. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the change happened all the time. So, for example, when we, when we joined Aviva, our um, brief there expanded from just running a range of funds within an organisation to being able to engage on the whole of Aviva's assets, um, which was something like... Uh, 180 billion pounds then from yeah. memory and um so it made us typically one of the largest shareholders in any of the FTSE companies so when we went and raised questions with an oil company or a nuclear company or a, a tobacco company um we weren't uh just kind of on the outside we were raising these questions as a major shareholder and when we 
joined, I think only 10% of FTSE companies were reporting on ESG. Yes. And by the time I left in 2008, that had gone up to about 85 or 90 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think now probably all uh, yes. major companies report on ESG. Now, of course, some of them are going to be doing that in such a way that they're using it as a fig leaf or a you know, yes. way of avoiding the real issues, so oh, cool. um, you know, not addressing the elephant in the room, but a lot of them really are assessing their own businesses from a risk point of view in terms of their carbon footprint, water usage, their equality of workforce, you know, all these different issues. In um, the recent podcast with Jonathan Porritt, he, he said he's not anti-business, uh, and, and, but he said that he, he really felt that the issue was this, that, you know, the, the system is one that rewards inaction. Uh, CEOs are always three to five years, so they're just thinking of the shareholder value. And it really will need us to have big political levers pulled. Do you think we need to change fundamentally the political levers around where, we, where, where finance works? And oh, that, definitely. That even yeah. be possible? Because you know, you're then interfering in free markets, aren't you? Well, you know, that's why I'm saying that the pandemic's an interesting test case, because I think we're, we're seeing, you know, an, uh, an extremely conservative government um, acting in, in a way that even the sort of wildest imagination of a, of a left-wing government yeah. wouldn't have dreamt of. Money um, tree being shaken. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you know, the, the pump priming is going on. The big question is, how is that directed? And, um, you know, I think, obviously, a lot more ambition can be inserted it, it, to make sure that that, um, you know, build, build, build is happening to prime the economy of the future, the economy that is going to be, you know, tackling climate change and resilient to climate change, rather than just kind of more of the same. And I've been a bit depressed as we come out of lockdown by seeing levels of air pollution going straight back up. You know, no one really addressing the massive increase, in, uh, you know, reversion of car usage, for example. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk, before I bring the boys back in, let's talk about money and its, uh, its kind of international ability to change. So let's put, let's put it this way. You can see how in the Western societies where all of this stuff is there, people go, let's invest green, let's invest clean, all of that stuff. How do we make the shift to work for those developing nations who do rightly have the assets that they want to use? And, and I've always said this, you know, improve their people out. But why wouldn't they want to do that? Why wouldn't they want to use what they've got? Um, can it work that the markets can influence in a way that is more equitable because at present it would seem that if you're in a clean much cleaner although we have pollution much cleaner western living country and you've got all these you can go and invest in that but if you're in places where you can't even get water where you've got enormous kind of loads on your social structure you may need to go and go i need to build quickly using the cheapest resource i have which might be fossil fuels Will that, will that money shift enough to create, hang on, we'll give the investment because to, to start with, the renewable stuff is more expensive. So we'll give you that, we'll make it work. Can you see that happening? 
I think it has to happen in the context of a regulatory framework. So you can't just expect capital flows to yeah. um, do the right thing. You know, I think we've seen time and time again that capitalism hasn't done the right thing. Mm. Uh, you know, it does the greediest and the, and the easiest thing often without either, you know, will of people and market consumers kind of saying, no, I won't accept that or uh, governments to direct it or, or um, you know, or major philanthropists. I mean, you mentioned Bill Gates. Mm. I think, um, you know, there's a very interesting kind of coming together potentially of investment that is directed towards impact and, uh, you know, positive change with government support and government kind of injections of investment in the right way and philanthropy and those three if they work together really well bring about the change we need but but is a company going to say actually i can see a market in sub-saharan africa where i'm just going to invest loads in solar because at the end of the day they'll still want to return won't they so they might think i'm risking a lot of cash here and i might not get the return in the time that i'm the ceo so do you think what we need is governments to, to dare I say, subsidise this stuff? Oh, yeah. All, we need all sorts of incentives because at the moment, you know, latent industries mm. are still being subsidised. And, you know, we see that with oil. We see it with um, air fuel, Nuclear. for example. Yeah. And we see it with fisheries. Mm. At the moment, it, the huge industrial fishing fleets are only able to op operate because they've got massive subsidies and they're using basically slave labor or you know near to slave labor so you know we have to le level the playing field through regulation and through sort of you know fairness and then if need be skew the playing field towards you know lower carbon solution providers but i think increasingly those are able to stand on their own two feet you know we just need to make sure that the momentum is continuing that the right price is being put on nature that nature exploitation isn't you know free essentially which it has been hitherto and that exploitation of people is is curbed yeah if you if you bring in all these factors then you know it becomes harder and harder just to go and do the wrong thing as it were uh, let's bring the boys back in. Um, Alex, I mean, let's, let's come clean. You, you work with oil and gas companies. We said that right at the beginning. Um, and you said to me when we first met, some of them are shifting their thinking. Um, what's your reaction to what Claire's been saying? Um, yeah, no, it's fascinating and you know, agree with a lot of it and it introduces questions and, as I often say, the, these choices. So you know, we go back as to society purpose that uh, you know oil and gas companies originally did in providing affordable energy massive correlation between fiscal poverty and energy poverty energy affordable energy lifts lives we're now much more knowledgeable uh, around the natural capital that hasn't been paid for the externalities of emissions uh, so you see particularly the european companies looking to uh, deliver un sustainable development goal of affordable and clean energy uh, and they are putting a lot of human capital and fiscal capital to, towards that endeavour. Um, you know, there are there is a lot of inertia, and there's a lot of you know, sort of job protection, and, and as ever, there's choices um, 
to be made. Last week we talked about uh, you know, sort of Tata steel and the blast furnaces and you know sort of job protection of one versus the other. Um, you know, there's also been recent solar panel. UK's largest solar panel farm just been uh, you know approved in in Kent in Graveney. Yes. Um, Greenpeace opposed it. Um, you know, solar power. You think, yeah, that's very good, uh, but actually they opposed it on environmental sort of and 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 land use. And you know, there's better alternative. Friends of the Earth supported it. Um, so you know, these these choices are, are not easy. And I think when it comes to the ESGs, you have a look at the different ESGs. The rating spread on the ESG is is very wide uh, that you know the common currency of finance and credit rating you'll get a 99% correlation between all the different credit uh, agencies on the ESG rating which as Claire says you know, people are really rallying behind there's such a wide diverse spread that you know talk to a, a fund manager uh, in, in a quiet honest moment they'll say they'll just shop around until they get an agency which gives their fund uh, an acceptable ESG rating, uh, yeah. and you know, one one will say yes, and one will say no. Um, so I, I, you know, I think there is massive movement and massive progress, but there's still so much to do. And that point that Claire says that you know that regulation to pay the environmental cost um, and the and the regulation needed to move capital where it's needed is the next next goal still to be done. And that that's the bit that I haven't seen the solution to yet. Do you think that is regular? That has got to be politicians, hasn't it? Because the companies, as Claire was saying, they, they won't do it themselves. Well, it needs to be politicians, but you know, driven by us. You know, we're all good at sort of blaming the rich CEO for being greedy. Yeah. We're all yeah. good at blaming the politicians for not doing the right thing. But how many of us look inside our company pension scheme mm. and say, where where is that money going? Uh, we let you know, we we are all in the pursuit of a better quality of life and an easier life. And we often turn a blind eye and we look at the numerical figure, not just the where that money is going. You, you did on your ISA for your, for your yeah. young un, but not, not you know, a lot of people don't. And it's only when you know, five billion people around the world do that, that politicians will listen and, and in terms of their survival in role act. So, you know, I, I do think, you know, a lot of us need to look much closer to ourselves, do the sorts of things that Claire has done. Uh, before we start blaming others and expecting others to solve all this. Uh, Angus, your reaction? We've just heard a lady who has been uh, amongst the pioneers of impact investing and the change of attitudes of, of money and capitalism in the city of London and, and therefore also, you know, Wall Street in New York. And I, and I, I think the message that she's given us, if I could be so bold, Claire, is one of frustration that money can do a certain job, but it can't do the whole job. Um, money can do a lot more, but it will never be the whole piece. And I think that's really important. That would be what I'd like to convey to, to a listener. You know, money, the allocation of capital, getting lighter, reducing humans, industrial metabolism, you know, is that it's an important role, but can it, it, it will never be able to negotiate the reduction, the removal potentially of the great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and the Ashran Dam to mm. ensure that the Nile flows from source to mouth for the next 1000 years. So we have to put money in its context. It's a tool, but there's a much bigger 
picture of regulation, uh, governorship, and also equality that needs to be addressed over the next 50, 100 years. Are you frustrated? Is that, is that fair, what Angus said? Um, oh, yeah, thanks. So I was just going to say, I, uh, well, I'm always frustrated, you know, about <laughs> so many different things. Politically, I'm in a sort of permanent state of sort of fermenting rage. But, um, but on, on the issue with money, I think, I think we might be sort of risking defining it a little narrowly in that we, we might be talking about investment and the profit motive. Mm. I think, you know, basically money is everywhere. You can't, you can't ignore money. As the cliche goes, it makes the world go round. But I think there are different kind of ways of using money. There are, um, you know, there's, there's straightforward kind of business and investment and early stage finance and so on and so forth. But then all the way through to, for example, you know, the work we do of trying to analyse these uh, levels of subsidies towards the worst forms of overfishing or, uh, you know, bring about incentives to uh, fishing communities who want to fish in a sustainable way. Now, what I don't believe can work in either of those situations is you just say, oh, well, we'll, um, you know, invest in the good ones and, and uh, not invest in the bad ones. Of course, that's not going to change anything. Um, and indeed, if you take, you know, a fishing community that's doing the right thing and then say, oh, we're going to invest in you, yeah. that will completely ruin everything because instead of the money going directly to the fishing community, it'll go to the investor. But I think what, what we do need to keep a, an eye on, you know, especially this now me talking from the NGO perspective, yeah. there are times when NGOs can kind of, you know, work almost too much from the sort of this is the right thing to do that you know speaking from the heart rather than saying hang on there there are people here who are going to mind about their living you know cost of living or, or cost of what they're going to have to give up to do something so we have to make these calculations and then ensure that the gaps are filled either with government investment or redirection of capital or uh, philanthropy and I think there's a, a growing, quite exciting role for philanthropists to come in and kind of crack some of the big uh, environmental conundrums. There's an irony here, isn't there, everyone, which is that you've got people who've got incredibly rich through perhaps, <laughs> well, undoubtedly in most cases, exploiting the system, the planet, and whatever. The, and then there now could be part, as you're saying, Claire, of the, the levers that, that can push things and you're right, you know, Bill Gates, you look at his footprint, it must be shocking the amount of, you know, materials that Microsoft products have and same for Apple, same for all of these. Mm. these people yeah, I'm interested in Jeff Bezos, actually, because yeah. Yeah, yeah. he he could, you know, potentially do so much to change the, <laughs> the footprint of um, Amazon and the sort of delivery yeah. mechanism through drones or something like that. Yeah. But at the same time, also... He's, um, you know, giving a huge amount of money to a climate solution. He is. He's given away, something like, I think, ten billion or something. But it's 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 interesting, isn't it? Where 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 we're going as a society to deal with this net zero challenge seems to me that the money is is part of it. And I think you were right at the beginning, Angus. It's just a tool, but it really means we have to have a shift in our thinking of what how we use money. And are we ready for that? 
I think we could be in for a period of, and I, I use this word, of uh, returns violence, you know, monetary violence, you know, in, 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 and, I, and I say that in that if, if Mother Nature... What do you mean? If, if, in that if Mother Nature is the boss, yeah, and humanity realizes Mother Nature is the boss, right? And we've never had a boss before, really. You know, we've ducked and weaved, but yeah. she's the boss. Then we look at a ninety trillion dollar economy. We look at mankind's assets at around three hundred trillion, as we value them in urban real estate, market capitalization, um, gold and art. Um, we look at the fund managers. I mean, we could re this could be really game on coming on here. You know what I mean? Society could really throw this around, demanding so much more of capitalism to be so much lighter and so much fairer. It, you know, it could spill out in, in the way that people perceive money and who has it and what the, are they doing enough. It could spill mm -hmm. out into, into really sort of strong expressions politically, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, to end with, do we believe that, you know, Claire, you, you're in a different world and we, we should do an episode on the oceans and maybe we'll do that. And because and, uh, I'm a big, uh, you know, I do some scuba diving. I think the work you're doing at Blue Moon is fantastic. And I really think that's one of the areas we really overlook is what we're doing to our seas. But to, to end with, do you believe, you know, even though the frustrations you've had, that we can, you know, use money to try and pull some of these things to make things better, that we can actually change. Because at the end of the day, we're the consumer. If we choose to buy things that are a bit better and a bit sustain more sustainable, then we're kind of voting with our money. Do you think that in the end, we can drive something to make things change? Yeah, I think we can and I think we are. It needs to happen faster. But I think, you know, there's all sorts of ways we can do it. We can do it in the way we consume, in, in the way we invest. And then we can put pressure on uh, politicians to you know, really uh, invest in a green economy or a blue economy if we want ocean conservation. And you know, then we can do more to sort of urge philanthropists yeah. to do what they can. So there's you know, a whole range of solutions and it, it's exciting. We just need to pick up the pace a bit. And I think possibly this pandemic is going to act as an enormous catalyst. Yeah. Uh, Alex, your your final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the the money that resides in the governments is is going to be needed uh, more than just us and citizens, but us as citizens sort of signal what change we want. And we, we've we talked about this a bit more all through a, a kind of Western, you know, fully yeah. capitalist. Uh, obviously, the Chinese have got a slightly different, albeit market-based system. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think they stand a good chance, you know, possibly more through near-term uh, effect of pollution in cities that will cause them to make the changes required and change human capital and uh, financial capital allocation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, we will need uh, you know, governments to, to make the change and we will need us as citizens to demand the change and do it in a way that sort of avoids the sort of bloodshed of the French Revolution, hopefully. Okay. Mr. Forbes is always up for a bit of revolution. Your final thoughts? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think a, a listener should realise that money, a capital allocation is a good tool. It's, it's turning our way, but it's still only a limited tool, I think. In, and in the, in we the have a choice, don't we, where we put our money. That's the thing, I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 
Claire, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, a lot. Thanks. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, boys, uh, as ever, fantastic service. Uh, and we shall be back next week with another episode of Guy Says No. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Let's get the change out there. Subscribe to Future Net Zero. Until then, take care. Thank you for listening to Gaia Says No. Don't forget to subscribe. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.